free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com and use the Thousand Movie Project podcast coupon code TMPP to get 50% off of your purchase. Not only that, enter offer code TMPP at checkout and get six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on Thousand Movie Project podcast, cinema. Also, DVDs are just fun. They're vintage now. It's like masturbating to a telegram. Plus, plus, free shipping on the whole thing. Go to adamandeve.com, select the lube, the harness, the dildo of your choice, and enter the offer code TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, for 50% off. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. A few months ago, I was walking home from Red Bar, and it was really late at night. I was walk- I'm walking on 8th Street in Little Havana, and it's pretty much empty. But there was one guy on the sidewalk with me, and he was hanging out on the corner where I was going to have to turn to get to my apartment. And he was a meth head, which sounds presumptuous, I know, but meth heads do have a very particular look, which we'll get into in a moment. It happened about a year ago. And what happened is that there was a solid two-week stretch during which a group of about ten meth heads were roaming the neighborhood. And then one day, suddenly, they were gone. But while they were in the area, you would see them everywhere. And you would see them at all hours. It was as though they never slept, or or as though they slept in shifts. And what was actually a little more unsettling than seeing them late at night was seeing them in the morning. Back in the pre-COVID times, I would wake up early so that I could be at a nearby coffee shop the minute they opened, at 8 a.m. And normally, in walking from my apartment to the coffee shop between, like, 7.45 and 8 a.m., I would see lots of people who are homeless, and they just sleep there. And traffic is light at that hour. None of the businesses are playing music out front. Little Havana is just as quiet at 7 a.m. as it is at 3 a.m. The meth heads, however, were not asleep at 7 a.m. The meth heads were never asleep. And I would see them normally between the Metro Rail and the Starlight Motel East, around about 7.30 in the morning. And an interesting thing about the Starlight Motel East, incidentally, is that there's a lot of activity out there early in the morning. And one of the intriguing things that I think I would tend to see outside of the Starlight Motel East at 7.30 in the morning is sex workers. Very young, very beautiful, immaculately made-up sex workers. And it seems kind of weird that Starlight Motel East, this super skeezy motel, would do so much business when it's literally like two blocks away from Brickell Avenue, which has way fancier hotels and accommodations for sex workers. But then I thought, well, yes, Brickell Avenue is a, is a business district. But it's also got lots of high-rise apartments. And because everybody walks around in business clothes, and because there are so many tourists and different languages being spoken, and because it's so bougie and cold and concrete and superficial and unwelcoming, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that Brickell Avenue is essentially small-town America. Very often, if you're at a Brickell Avenue bar during happy hour, you'll see that lots of people dressed for the office will stop and say hello to one another, and they don't even work in the same office. One of them is part of a group of lawyers, and the other one is part of a group of commercial architects, and their offices are on different floors of the same building, or they did business together, and their offices are two blocks apart. There's a small-town vibe about Brickell Avenue where everybody kind of knows everybody's business. 
And let's say that you are a happily married young professional. You live on Brickell Avenue. You want to engage in America's great pastime of infidelity. So you pick up a sex worker or you hire an escort and you've got everything ready to go. You've got a box of condoms and two Viagra and a little vial of coke, a riding crop, some handcuffs and a box with two wigs because you're going to be Regis and she's going to be Kathy Lee. All in all, it's looking like a really good Tuesday but not so fast. Remember, you live on Brickell Avenue because you're a big corporate hotshot. Yes, you are. But you also live in small town America. You can't just risk strolling into the Marriott right there, right outside Batch Gastro Pub, because you might run into Bob from accounting, who tells everything to his wife, and his wife works in the Chase building, but she's working on a project this month at the Bank of America building, which is right next to the SunTrust building, which has a Trulux in the lobby where your spouse's office has lunch every Wednesday, and she might find out. So of course, you can't be seen with your sex worker on Brickell Avenue. You have to take your sex worker someplace that isn't so far away that you'll lose the mood in transit, but it's got to be a place that the bougie folk of Brickell will never dare to visit. You need to go and have your illicit, kinky, drug-addled sex in a place that's geographically close, but when you consider social status and repute, it may as well be a million miles away. I'm speaking, of course, about the Starlight Motel East. And even if you go to the Starlight Motel East and you do see somebody whom you know from Brickell, somebody whose loose lips might sink your ship, here's some wisdom that can smooth your feathers. If you are not supposed to be at the Starlight Motel East, it is a Newtonian law of science that anyone who sees you at the Starlight Motel East is also not supposed to be at the Starlight Motel East. And this is what we used to say about online dating back when it was still taboo. The only people who are going to see that you are on OkCupid are the people who are on OkCupid. But anyway, what would happen in the mornings is I would cross by this motel all the time on my way to the coffee shop, and every morning for this two-week period, I would see a different pair or trio of meth heads. And again, I understand this might sound a little brazen, like I'm assuming that these people were on meth, but there are some telltale signs that you're looking at someone who's high on meth and who has spent the past several weeks high on meth. First off, they are all wiry, physically. Their clothes hang on them like a coat on a rack. Another big tell is that they're agitated, physically. Lots of fidgeting, talking to themselves. And then the biggest tell of all is that they've got ulcers all over their faces. Like, like gaping wounds that are wide enough and red enough to capture your eye, but they're not deep enough to, like, to bleed? I don't know, maybe they secrete something, like pus, I don't know. Anyway, back to where we began. I'm walking home from Red Bar, it's really late at night, and I'm kind of drunk. And as I'm rounding the corner into my apartment, I see a man standing under a street lamp, and he's doing something with his hand. I mean, he had one hand down at his side, at like hip level, and he's holding something there. And meanwhile, with the other hand, he's kind of working on his face somehow. So anyway, there, there's no avoiding this guy. I've got to get up close to him to turn the corner, and as I'm approaching him, I can see the ulcers on his face, and I'm like, fuck, it's a meth head. Because among the people in my area who are homeless, of whom there are many, I'd say the overwhelming majority of them are totally cool people and have no interest in causing anybody any kind of trouble. I've seen homeless people get violent twice in my two years here. One was a dude who was trying to smash a window at a gas station near my apartment at like 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And the other time, I'll tell you the story some, I'll tell you the whole story some other night. A guy came up to the patio at Red Bar and he picked up a stool and he started swinging it and saying that he was going to bash people's brains in if he didn't get a cigarette. And, but what feels like a necessary caveat to both of those stories, however, is that both of those men 
had been homeless clearly for a very long time, and they were both extremely skinny and not all that formidable physically, which doesn't take much away from the fact that they were wielding weapons over their head and absolutely out of their minds, but the meth head, however, is the only kind of homeless person that you want to always avoid because you never know what they're going to do. Yes, they look emaciated. They appear to be in uniformly terrible health. Odds are, if it's just a question of trading blows and you're in moderately good physical condition, you're going to beat the meth head if he tries to start a fight with you. But all it takes is one sudden move for them to catch you unaware. But so it's late. I'm drunk. I'm approaching this eight, this guy on 8th Street because I have to go around him to get to my apartment. I'm being cautious. I'm looking every which way to see if this is some kind of meth head ambush. Like they get their quirkiest one to occupy my attention and then they swarm once my guard is down. And I feel like it's pointless to just tell you that there were no meth heads in sight, because that doesn't really mean anything. It isn't that you can't... Okay, actually, that actually that reminds me, matter of fact, of this thing that marine biologists have been saying for years, and it's been corroborated at this point by tons of drone footage, and it's this. Any time you are in the ocean, any time or any spot in the ocean, you are within arm's reach of a shark, and you probably don't even know it. Not necessarily a great white shark, or a hammerhead shark, or a megalodon, or anything formidable, nothing threatening. But you are in the ocean, which is literally the land of sharks. And I can't help but be reminded of that in a kind of scathing way whenever I'm watching local news and, and they're talking about the latest shark attack in Miami or Vero Beach or wherever the fuck because it's the same shit every time. You see some dude in a Salt Life t-shirt with his hands on his hips just shaking his head saying, Man, it's just one of those days, you know, the odds of this kind of thing happening are so remote. And yes, the odds of being attacked by a shark are remote. But it's still your fault that it happened. You are bathing, half-dressed, in the only place on Earth where sharks can live, and you are gyrating for their attention in the water. If I jump into a pit full of hypodermic needles, the odds of a needle going directly up my urethra are pretty slim. But if I did jump into a pit full of hypodermic needles, and one of those needles went directly up my urethra, and I came to you and said, Man, it's just one of those days, you know, the odds of this kind of thing happening are so remote. You would call me a fucking idiot. If I pointed at a dilapidated house on 8th Street, and I said, Hey, the air in that house is very refreshing, but it's full of cannibals. Would you go into that house and do the breaststroke? You would not. I bet you wouldn't even go into the ocean if I told you that I, given my open schedule, that I had scattered 100 cannibals in the water who are very adept at swimming. Which would literally not be half as dangerous as what is actually in the ocean waiting for you. Anyway, what I'm, what I'm trying to say with the shark digression is that it is safest to assume that at no point on 8th Street in Little Havana are you more than arm's length away from a meth head. Maybe they're standing behind a tree, maybe they're crouched behind a car, Maybe they're hiding in a shoe. The point is, never let your guard down. But so it's really late, I'm drunk, I'm trying to get to my apartment, and this meth head is doing weird shit under a street lamp, and as I get closer, I see that the thing in his hand, down by his hip, is a bag, is a bag of shredded cheese. This man is staring across the street. He's not blinking. He's not staring at anything in particular, and he is systematically sticking his fingers into this bag pinching up wads of shredded cheese and tucking them into his cheek with his thumb. He's not eating them. He's not swallowing. He's not chewing. He's just kind of... storing it. And as I began to understand what this man was doing as I was walking past him, and bear in mind my guard was up and my adrenaline was spiking a little, I definitely knew that I should get back to my apartment as quickly as possible, but I just stopped on the sidewalk, alone on 8th Street in the dead of night, and I got real close to the meth head. We were standing under the same ring of street lamp, and I just 
watched him. I watched as the wad in his cheek got bigger and bigger, as the cheek got more and more distended from his face, as these pendulous little tendrils of saliva started roping down from the other corner of his mouth, and the dude is not blinking through any of it. It was the most hypnotic thing I've ever seen. Or that's not, that's not, I, that's not true. The most hypnotic thing I've ever seen is fortunately something I can experience whenever I want, although I don't suppose I'll ever recapture the beauty of the moment when it first happened. A few years ago, I was at Sunset Mall in South Miami. I was sitting at a bar of a magnificent pizza place called the Mellow Mushroom, which regrettably is no longer there. Incidentally, quick digression, I saw somebody kill himself one time while I was there, but that's a story for another time. But no, the most hypnotic thing I ever saw. I don't remember what the exact chemistry was, what the quantities were, or what time of day it was, or how much food was in my stomach. But it was the middle of summer, and I had just gotten the right kind of tipsy. It was raining outside, and I was feeling loose and conversational, but I was just as content to sit there by my lonesome and watch TV. And the thing that they had on TV was the Summer Olympics, specifically female pole vaulting. And I'm totally not trying to jump at the immediate salacious jokes that are there to be made about women and poles and the sensuous pebbled surface of a racetrack. Nor was it even really the competitive nature of pole vaulting that I found so hypnotic. It was the instant replays. Because these Summer Olympics were being filmed on cameras. I mean, if, if you trained these cameras on your face, it would show your childhood trauma. That's how fucking 4K HD Blue Jasmine clear these fucking cameras were. And so these pole vaulters, like most Olympians, they have a funky shape to their body. You'll find that most Olympians carry around physiques that have been tailored to accommodate their sport of choice. The most familiar example of this is the Olympic swimmer, with his or her dramatically V-shaped torso, the very, very broad shoulders and the very narrow waist. And so it's not like the pole vaulters are hugely muscular or particularly shredded, but when that replay goes into slow motion and it pulls its 4K HD witchcraft, you can see the flexing and rippling of every sinew of muscle in their body. Not only can you see every sinew of muscle, you can see how different muscle groups are trading off the weight, the burden, in different phases of, of, the, of the pole vaulting maneuver. And when I was just the right kind of tipsy, so tipsy I didn't even want to touch my beer again for disrupting for the, the, the balance in my blood. Oh my god, I'm not even exaggerating, I almost cried. It was so beautiful. One of those moments, okay, I was incidentally, we're gonna get back to the meth head and the cheese. There's a Cormac McCarthy quote I really like. I think it's from Blood Meridian or The Crossing, where somebody says that a man is forever at odds to know his own mind because his own mind is all he's ever gonna have to know it with, which I like very much because it illustrates how- Also, you know what? Let me quote from The Cross- You know what? It's time for the quote of the week! This week's quote comes from The Crossing by Cormac McCarthy. Even in this world, more things exist without our knowledge than with it, and the order in creation which you see is that which you have put there, like a string in a maze, so that you shall not lose your way. For existence has its own order, and that no man's mind can compass, that mind itself being but a fact among others. To Cormac McCarthy and his linguistic wizardry, we raise our glasses. Cheers! Cheers. That whole thing was a digression from the meth head on the street corner in the middle of the night stuffing shredded cheese into his mouth. Anyway, I ended up walking home without saying anything to him, and I, and I didn't get attacked, everything was fine. But that image of the meth head under the street lamp on an empty commercial street in the middle of the night thumbing wads of shredded cheese into his cheek and leaving them there to just sort of congeal in his mouth, that image dominated my imagination for weeks. And what ended up happening is I'd be in conversation with people at work, at restaurants, at bars, at whatever. 
and then something would happen. They'd mention a particular homeless person in the area, or some kind of dairy product, or street lamps, or meth, or heroin, or maybe they would just adopt a certain kind of vacant gaze. And suddenly, like an acid flashback, I would be there again, in my head, back on 8th Street in the middle of the night, and my hands would go up and I'd grab my head and I'd go, Oh my god, I have to tell you about the meth that I saw on 8th Street the other night. He was taking shredded cheese out of a bag and putting it in his cheek, but he wasn't eating it. I'm actually not really sure what was happening, but I think you should know about it. And so I would tell the story to whomever I was with, to the extent that it even is a story and not just an image. And sometimes they would find it interesting, as I did, and sometimes they were just kind of, kind of put off. They found it gross or depressing, and they would say to me, Why are you bringing this up? I was just telling you about how the most treasured memory I have with my deceased father is how we used to milk cows in the pastures of Vermont, and somehow you have lassoed this conversation and dragged it down to some meth addict you saw while stumbling home. Now, I should say, most of the people who hang out with me, who go, to, who go and have a beer or a coffee with me or invite me places, they're accustomed to this kind of conversation. It's digressive, it's scattered, whatever. I often mention things that are kind of upsetting, but that I happen to find really, really interesting. I will hear about something kind of morbid that happened, and it, and, and it engages my curiosity. I carry it around with me, and then when I'm talking to somebody who's asking me about my week or whatever, I just I go ahead and I mention the interesting morbid thing. But this impulse to jump towards such topics presents its own hazards when practiced in the world of dating. I do most of my dating off of an app called Hinge, and I get the impression that Hinge targets people in their late 20s and older. College graduates, professionals, and as I've mentioned, I live in Little Havana, kind of close to Brickell Avenue. Little Havana, if you don't know, is a middle-class community with lots of lower-income housing. It's also got a lot of homelessness. But less than a mile away from Little Havana is Brickell Avenue, just a few blocks down on 8th Street. And Brickell is like a portrait of opulence. Brickell is where rich people on vacation go to have dinner. Brickle is full of apartments, and because it's also a business district, Brickle houses lots of young professionals, people in their late 20s, early 30s. So when I go on Hinge and I set my search radius for five miles, the place it tends to point me toward is Brickle Avenue. And the reason that Hinge never links me with anybody in Little Havana is, I, I think, is because Little Havana is mostly a family neighborhood. When I go for walks in the evening, especially during quarantine, I see lots of kids riding scooters and bikes in the street. I see married couples talking with other married couples across their balconies. I don't think there are many young, single people living in Little Havana. Anyway, the few bars where I tend to hang out on Brickell Avenue are kind of moody and ambient and they're dark. They have a playful or cozy kind of romantic vibe. And they've all got cheap happy hours. So when I go to these places during happy hour, I tend to see, and sometimes, if I'm lucky, overhear people who are on their first date, which I find endlessly fascinating. But when I see these first dates, where it looks like two young professionals have walked down here from the, directly from their offices, I just kind of sip my beer, and I eavesdrop, and I, I tend to hear lots of conversation about the workplace, and about money, and traffic, and politics, and corporate culture, and workloads, and vacation spots, and travel destinations, and news items. The one such conversation that stands out in my mind as the most cringeworthy was, I was at Red Bar, and I was there as this man and woman met, and as they kissed on the cheek and introduced themselves, and then they sat and nursed their drinks for a very long time. The bar got kind of loud, I got absorbed in my book, and then the bar got quiet, and people started leaving. And suddenly it was just these two people on their first date, and myself, alone at a bar. And I remember that once I could suddenly hear what they were talking about again, this guy was in a deep, tipsy, verbose, sprawling explanation about cryptocurrency. I didn't want to be too obvious about looking at the woman, but I, I, I went to the bathroom at one point, and in, in so doing, I caught a glimpse of that woman's face, and she was wearing 
the most strained smile I have ever seen. Now, they aren't all like this, obviously. Even though the conversation does tend to revolve around just those few items that I mentioned, I often see what looks like a disparity of interest. Probably the most interesting one I've ever heard of, and this is a bit of a digression, this man and woman had just met at a bar. She mentioned that she is recently divorced, and that the divorce proceedings had been going forward while she was pregnant. So she's a newish mother, the baby's a few months old, and the dude tells her at one point that he's going to step outside to buy some cocaine. He'd been texting with his dealer, and his dealer had just showed up. And he tells her that after he's finished buying the cocaine, he's going to step into the bathroom for a minute to take a quick bump, and he asks her if she would like some. And with the most sincere regret, she puts her hand on her chest and she says, I'm sorry, I'm breastfeeding, I wish that I could. Anyway, what I've noticed is that when I go out with women on, who are my own age on Brickle, people who are either at a very promising start or well along in the ranks of their profession, we have a lot of fun on like the first two dates. But then it generally peters out at around the third or fourth date. And what I think ends up happening is we shake hands, we have some casual chit chat, and then suddenly like that, I'm kind of drunk and I'm laughing a lot and telling them about the meth head eating shredded cheese outside my apartment. And I, I swear to God, these are stories I tell myself as I'm getting ready to go on the date that I should not mention because they're upsetting or they're weird or they're too off color. But then I have two beers and I'm like, hey, real quick, let me tell you about this weird upsetting off color thing. So anyways, whatever. We go on talking about shit like that, about the meth head with the shredded cheese on my street corner or, as per the last episode of the podcast, uh, the, the young woman with Down syndrome who I see at the bakery some mornings who's, who, who always shows up with a $10 bill and a handwritten note and then you know deviating from the stories i will ask my date with genuine interest if they are more interested in ghosts or in aliens which is a great starting ground for conversation because everybody is at least mildly interested in one of those topics and we all feel silly to discuss it so if you want some advice from me that is my only piece of dating advice not that i'm a person who should be giving dating advice but if you're looking for a good opener because you're both kind of uncomfortable and this feels a little awkward then ask them a dumbass question and watch how an interesting conversation flows from it. The point is that I think my conversations are kind of cotton candy-ish. They're puffy and colorful and sweet for a little while, and they keep on expanding and expanding and expanding. Thus, the first date goes really well, and then sometimes the second date goes really well too. And then somewhere around what should be the third or fourth date, the person will be like, you know, this has been fun, and I would honestly love to meet you for happy hour on, you know, on a fairly regular basis, but I don't see anything romantic happening here. It's happened repeatedly, and on two occasions I've actually continued to go out and get drinks with the person, but what I think is happening is that for the first couple dates, they're like, oh, this is very fun and unconventional conversation. I'm down for this. I'd like to have more of this because it's so unlike the sort of conversation that I have with young businessmen I normally meet on Hinge. But then, after the second date, I think they're having this epiphany that's like, oh, the reason he never talks about work stuff is because he doesn't really work. Which isn't completely true. It's kind of true. Like, I'm definitely... I am definitely, like, mildly employed. I shouldn't downplay it, but it's not like... Like, if my future were a stock, for instance, I would not encourage you to invest. And I know that it's fucked up and narcissistic to put, to, to put my head up my ass like this and be like, so why are women so captivated by my first date conversation? But it's just such a weirdly recurring thing that... First of all, all the women who tend to reach out to me on Hinge are almost invariably serious people. They, they, they're hard workers, they're smarter than I am, they're better educated, they're more widely traveled, they're more compassionate. I've clearly done something resoundingly right in the way that I crafted my profile because it draws the attention of winning personalities. 
but it's also weirdly consistent that they jump ship after the like the, the, the third date. One of my friends suggested that I start asking them why they want to jump ship after the second or third date, but that feels kind of mean to do to somebody. Like asking somebody to tell me what turned them off because they're already in an awkward situation by telling me after a couple dates that they're not interested in pursuing anything else. That 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 is an awkward enough conversation without my being like, okay, but could you give me an extemporaneous explanation of roughly 500 words about why you don't want to see me naked? In the last episode of the podcast, I expressed some insecurity about my Spanish, my pronunciation of things in particular, and three people got in touch with me saying I need to speak more Spanish on the podcast. Um, none more adamant than Talia, who went so far as to compliment my voice and say that it would be just right for Spanish narration. And so, for Talia alone, I put together a brief Spanish story for you. Enjoy. En mi pueblo hay un gato, y el gato se llama José. José tiene pistolas. Y José me dice que no puedo comer galletas en su pueblo. Y le digo, Pero José, mi mamá me dio estas galletas porque tengo problemas en el estómago con el gluten. Por favor, déjame comer estas galletas. Y debo decirte esto de José. Aunque es fuerte, también es amable. Y me permitió comerme estas galletas. José es un gato amistoso. Y tendremos muchos más aventuras. Adiós, hijos míos. Ahora debo irme con mi caballo. Yo no monto mi caballo. Eso sería malo. Simplemente camino a su lado, porque es mi amigo, y disfruto de la conversación. This Spanish monologue is brought to you by Google Translate, and it's directed toward Talia. The final segment of this week's episode is something I was really excited to present about a month ago. It's something that I think my guest was also excited for me to present about a month ago, but something got in the way. What happened is I finished working on that book that I'd been working on since December, and then as soon as it was done, I started sending it out to agents, even though I technically was not finished revising and typing up the second half of the book. And the book is over 400 pages, so it's a big task. The other reason I went ahead and sent out those queries is because when you're querying an agent, you're really just giving them samples from the very beginning of the book. Also, pretty much any agency website that you go on tells you in, in no unclear terms to not expect any kind of feedback until about four weeks have gone by. So I was thinking, okay, four weeks, cool beans, that's about how long it's going to take me to, you know, leisurely revise this whole situation. 
But then, to my great delight and cosmic horror, an agent got back to me in the course of 24 hours and said that she was very interested in the sample and she would like to see the rest of the manuscript. So my life got flipped, turned upside down, and that is why it's been a month since I've uploaded an episode of the podcast, and that's why my beleaguered guest, Rhett Doherty, the head brewer at Vesaser Brewery in Wynwood, has been completely neglected. He was kind enough to give me an hour of his time for this interview, and in my fever to get those corrections done, I never got around to editing our conversation down to its current swift, svelte 30-minute version. And so here it is, belatedly, and with many apologies to my guest, a conversation with Vesaser's head brewer, Rhett Doherty. We're recording this on July 10th. And today's blog post at thousandmovieproject.com was about how um, when restaurant dining rooms were open again, I, I resumed one of my routines of going almost every weeknight to Batch Gastropub around Brickle, and I would order a Vesasur IPA, whichever one it is that they have on tap, and I would read off my Kindle. While I was there, I've been reading, for the first time in my life, a book of essays about food which I always thought would be boring, like just lists of ingredients oh. and lots of conversations about olfactory notes and bouquets and, and stuff like that. But it wasn't that kind of grocery list of sensory stuff. It was actually really interesting because what I hadn't realized is that when people are writing or talking seriously about food or drink, what they generally end up talking about is memory. Um, or this at least is the case with amateur food writing. I've read some things from sommeliers, and it, it's like a medical textbook. I can never understand a word. But in my research for that article about La Botanica, I watched an episode of your IGTV show from Vesasur's Instagram page called Masque Cerveza, where you were interviewing Arlene Delgado, the artist who designed the bottle and came up with the name. And in that conversation, she describes how you kind of shepherded her through tasting the beer and about the what were her olfactory and emotional and memory experiences when she first tried that beer, which I've never been able to do to sort of appreciate that. So I went a couple doors down and I bought a Vesasur brand that they a Vesasur beer that they had that I've never tried. Mongolandia. And I wanted to know if I have this at the outset of our conversation, if you could talk me through the process of trying to appreciate nuances of flavor. Like if someone joins you at the brewery and how do you, and they're not accustomed to this kind of drinking, is do you cue them with any particular questions? <laughs> that, Alex, thank you. That is, that is a fantastic question um, and well thought out. Um, uh, I, I'd say that what I do when I taste someone out to a beer that we've created here at Vesasur is I let them taste it before they do anything. Okay. <laughs> you know? like, that's, that's the most important thing for me is like, please take a sip of this beer, like uninhibited, just what is your first impression of no matter what it is, because everybody tastes different, right? Um, so uh, that's, I really try to focus on that when I'm um, tasting out a beer with, with someone for the first time. Uh, I really try to give them their own opportunity to taste and make their own impression for the first time. Um, because at the end of the day, that's what we all have to 
to base what our sensory perception is off of. You know, it's, it's what we've created for ourselves. Um, so, so that has to be there. And, and, and for a brewer, that's an, that's a, like an awesome time because I can just like sit back and just like watch it happen. Okay. And I enjoy that. Um, so that's really nice. Uh, um, but then I will, uh, obviously, uh, ask, uh, for, for a, a first impression and, uh, what are you, what are you getting? Um, and, uh, as you're drinking that Mangolandia, what, what I think you're probably getting is a, like a, like I said, I don't want to. I, I don't want to bias your opinion, and that that's what this is all about. Is is that if if I were to say anything right now, I'd bias your opinion, right? Well, I would say that the first thing I noticed is that unlike the more I guess eccentric gimmicky beers, like PB and J beers or bacon flavored beers, it doesn't smell like the food on the label. It smells like beer. Um, and then I tasted Thank it, you. and it doesn't. Oh, is that a bad thing when like the PB and J beer smells like a sandwich? Oh, I mean, uh... I don't, I don't find it, I don't find it attractive. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want uh, my beer to taste like peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So, <laughs> I, 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 we don't, we don't go for those flavor profiles. We're, we're mainly just trying to, to influence like the, the where we, where we are here in Miami and, and tropical flavors. So never <laughs> a PB and J just seems like that, that would be a, a tough one. That, that happened with me. I was at a friend, I was at um, Sunset Tavern with a friend who's kind of promiscuous with his beer palate. The server suggested it. It was like $12 for this PB&J beer. And he took one sip and almost gagged. But he said, it's across the table. We could smell it. And it was, it was PB&J. That's fun. That's funny though. Cause in, in one sense they nailed it. Yeah. On, on the fact that they made a, a beer that tastes like peanut butter and jelly. But the, the fundamental issue is that do you really want to drink a beer that tastes like a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And, and my answer to that question is no. <laughs> and when, so when you go uh, to these places, when you go to these places like yard house or just a place where they have like a hundred things on tap, the bartenders have told me in the past when I like, when I'm curious about something that sounds eccentric, they'll say like, to be honest, that's the kind of beer I've never seen anyone finish. Um, they'll say it's, it gets ordered a lot because it sounds exotic. It has an amusing name, but um, nobody makes their way through it. That's funny. That's funny. No, I, I, I like that. I like that context that you give me because like when would any brewer be proud of making a beer that someone would say that they could not finish an entire pint of it? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> you know? and maybe they say, oh, yes, so. this does taste like cotton candy or it does taste like a lollipop. But <laughs> then they end up getting a Lagunitas or something to, to have with their actual meal. This is this seems like a safe beer, and I imagine it's pretty popular because I found it at my local grocery store. One hundred percent. Yeah, that that is our top selling beer oh, right really? now. Uh, the Mangolandia. Yep. Oh. Uh, that beer this year for the first time during twenty twenty uh, surpassed our Spanglish Latin Lager as our top seller, uh, and and we're super proud of uh, the way that Mangolandia tastes right now. And we're uh, 
very happy with the way that it's selling and and we're happy to turn uh the beer drinkers of florida on to uh such a, a deliciously crafted uh south florida made craft beer you you i forget how you worded it there but you just said something referring to the consistency of the taste you said oh you said i, I like how it tastes right now and when i was writing the article about la botanica tice said your brand manager venturini is that her last name indeed uh she said that even if you tried we'll get to la botanica but even if you tried to make it again it'll never taste the same and (laughs) because it was just so unique to that small batch and what interests me about your profession as a brewer by contrast to my own as a writer where if i write something i let it sit for 24 hours 24 hours later i get to revise it and perfect it and what interests me about your profession is that you spend a what I imagine is a lot of time and money brewing something, then you put it in a barrel, and you put that barrel on a shelf, and you say to yourself, I hope I didn't fuck that up, and then you just leave it there for a year. And I'm wondering, how do you get it out of your head? How do you not, how do you fight that temptation to peak? Is there a way to peak and see if it's on the right course? Or is it just a surprise that... Alex, man, that's that's such a good question. Um, how do... Does it not torment me? Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> Excel spreadsheets. Oh, That's okay. it. <laughs> That's how it does not torment me. So um, I am certainly like a creative personality. Um, that is how my brain works. And uh, the hardest part for me in the brewing and the creative process of of, bring, of of being a head brewer and and making beer here at Vezasur is is uh, the non-creative stuff. Um, so uh, I I have to work very hard at keeping spreadsheets on every project that I have in process. Um, so that's the struggle for me. Um, the creativity is not hard. Um, that comes very naturally and easily. Um, but keeping track of it, making sure that I'm getting uh, quantifiable data from the things that we're testing out and that also, again, we're learning from them. And then I'm taking those learnings and then pumping that back into the next iteration of, of what uh, we're doing. Um, so, so that's the hardest thing, uh, for a, a, a beer like, uh, the Mangolandia, um, we went through a, a lot of perfection and, uh, honing, uh, trying to get that beer to exactly the right, uh, place, uh, that it needed to be, um, more specifically to your question with barrel age beers, because they're in oak. Um, for such a long amount of time. Um, the typical length of time that all of our barrel age releases, like La Botanica that we were talking about, um, was in uh, Cabernet Sauvignon for a year. Um, uh, the uh, We did a Tiki Tiki, which was a coconut barrel aged uh, rum porter. Uh, that was in uh, oak for a year as well. And, and it's hard as you were alluding to, to put that liquid into oak and then more or less forget about it for a year. And and the way that I structure that is just um, to have quarterly tastings. Um, so we we serialize all of these uh, barrels 
that we have in process and uh, I schedule the tastings out and and we do uh, we do tastings with our brewing team uh, once every three months which is a, a great way to spend a, a Friday afternoon tasting barrel aged beer uh, which we all love to do um, and 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 that's the that's kind of the opportunity for us to to evaluate these beers and and see if they have gone too far and we don't want to release them or they need a little bit more like let's let's spend like three six nine months months more uh in oak or uh let's go now um and let's release it now and and that's something uh that last point that I made was is something that we're dealing with right now. I, I have a Goza, a, a 5% Goza that I put in gin barrels um, three months ago. And uh, I tasted it three months after I put it into barrels and was expecting it to be there for a year and tasted it after three months and be like, and, and us as an entire team, we said, this is done. We're ready to go. Let's pull it out now. So instead of waiting in a year, we're going to, gonna pull it out and we're gonna put it into in the kegs and we're gonna have it as as a, a barrel aged uh, draft release here at the pub so um, it's 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 a I, I evaluate it on a, a quarterly basis that's generally like how I how I monitor the at least the barrel aged product products and if you are testing it in one of those um, quarterly bases and you have one of those experiences where you're like okay this is this has not gone the way we wanted. Let's not release it. Does that go down the drain? Do you sell like Frankenstein baby barrels to people who might want them? <laughs> that, that's a good question. Uh, never will I ever release any beer. Uh, and we as a team here at Vezaser will, will never release a beer that we're not like totally 100% like behind. Because um, beyond just like the, the making of the liquid, uh, there's a lot of like marketing and and uh, preparation that goes into releasing uh, a beer, and I will always be the first person to to say that hey, no, we're not we're not going to release this. And 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 uh, to this point, at Vezzer, we we haven't been put in that position, but uh, I certainly would would stop us from from releasing anything that wasn't up to the quality that we expect. And, and that quality level is, is to be making the, the best beer in Florida, you know? And, and if, if I don't, if I don't feel like that, then we're not going to release it. So, um, well, I would, I would certainly find it very instructive and interesting. If you, for instance, had a brewery tour where let's say this Mengolandia in my hand is the Goldilocks version, the perfect one. And then, on either side of it, you let me sample a Mangolandia that was in the barrel a little bit too long and one that wasn't in there just long enough so that I could appreciate the nuances of what a perfect thing tasted like. Although I can understand your apprehension about having people taste subpar beers. Yeah, totally. Totally. What, what, what's nice with that though, Alex, is that, uh, uh, the Mangolandia is not a barrel aged beer. Okay. So that's the nicest thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so if, if I was in the business of mass producing barrel aged beer, um, 
I'm not sure that I would still like want to be in this because the attrition rate is just like there's there there there's there's dead soldiers. There are barrels that uh, may have not been um, evacuated the correct way or or still have something kind of nasty left in them oh, okay. that might infect your beer. Um, so I'm I'm happy that I'm not in that position with with beers like the Mangolandia. Uh, Mangolandia just sees stainless steel, and we can keep that very clean, thank God. With the barrel age projects, that's when you really have to be on top of that stuff, and and that's why we have that like quarterly like cycle that we have. But well, you referred to you have no issues with the create with the creative element. Um, you talk about the attrition of the general project bacteria grows in barrels yeah. and shit like that. Another thing had come to mind, which was Vasisir strikes me as being so local. It seems so Winwood that I've always thought of it as just like a local hangout. And um, I don't think, I've never really thought much of the fact that your beer is available in grocery stores and that that's a sign of the fact that this is a big operation. But then when I was working on that interview um, or when I was working on that article about La Botanica, I saw how many Vezasur people were being CC'd on things and offering input and devising press releases. And I was kind of surprised at what a big operation it is. It makes sense once I realize how crazy huge it is to be in retail stores and to be on taps at bars all over the state. But I would imagine that, kind of like with Hollywood, the business aspect might inhibit your willingness to take creative risks. And I'm wondering how often do you get the chance, or how often are you even interested in doing this, to really swing for the fences and try something that is so weird that there's a formidable chance that it could go completely bust? That's a great question. Um, And I'd... (laughs) We, we do not hesitate. Uh, that's, that's the facts We're we're, we're a, a, a young enough brand, uh, and we're so happy to be growing as fast as we are in Miami that what we want to do is we want to experiment and we want to bring new, exciting things to the market as soon as we can. Uh, and a, a good example of, of this one is, um, what we're calling our South Coast IPA, uh, which is another uh, IPA uh, similar to the Molly Yerba, but a little bit higher in alcohol at 7.5%, a little bit toned down in hot bitterness. Um, oh, Molly Yerba is the one that I have every evening at Batch. That's their IPA. Exactly. Okay. So like Molly Yerba, this one is the South Coast IPA, but instead of a, a session IPA, this is more of like a, a formidable IPA. Um, and instead of it being very hot forward in, in bitterness, uh, we approached this one to try to be very hot forward in aroma and flavor only. So that's what we did with the, the South Coast IPA. And, and, and that, was a, that was a gamble. Uh, when we did that Uh, and uh, the reason that that was a gamble was because that was a recipe that uh, I just had written Um, and uh, there wasn't a a time that was planned to say hey let's brew this South Coast IPA let's get this out there right now Um, it it took a, a little bit more inspiration and what that pivot point was for for me was uh the death of anthony bourdain 
you as kind of a, 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 a hero and a, a role model for me and kind of being very passionate about his his craft and his trade and wanting to bring that to other folks and 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 express that in a way that was uh meaningful and and kind of uh digestible for everybody so um this was a beer that i had uh written the recipe for and and had ready and 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 when that happened we 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 canceled production for the day and and uh luckily we had all the raw materials on on hand and we pivoted and and we brewed um the south coast ipa which we which we <laughs> initially called the no reservations ipa because of the inspiration from anthony bourdain and um just something that that we felt very strongly about and 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 it, it takes uh a kind of uh, an inflection point like that sometimes to to take a, a step and do something that might be off kilter a little bit. And uh, what it's resulted in for us is our, our, our highest selling IPA. Mr. Bourdain has been able to, to impact so many lives and, and so many things, and even down to the, the brewing industry in Miami, Florida. And, and I'm happy that we, we've, we've created the, the South Coast IPA in that, in that name. I'm not so well versed with the show, but I did read um, Kitchen Confidential. And I think one of the things that was so interesting about Bourdain is that it seems, and again, I'm not that familiar with the show, but it seems like he was one of the few personalities that celebrated gustatory things, but he didn't act like, oh, this is just a cute, chintzy little thing. It was like food and the palate as a road to self-discovery. He's had a curious influence. He's going to have a a very long legacy, clearly. Um, But I think that's what people are so drawn to, because when you look at people like what in a garden or Martha Stewart or Guy Fieri you look at these major personalities that celebrate the palate and it's always just festive whereas for him it was more emotional it was more spiritual yeah and for for Bourdain it was he had a food that a food and an experience and a drink that uh, resonated for him for a, a not only a, a a great time or a festive time like you're saying but also for a crummy time yeah if you were to ignore that spectrum of the entire rainbow you you'd be remiss right so uh it's nice uh to to, to try to draw from what he did there and 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 then you know just make such a nice beer that that folks love here in miami you mentioned you're working on something which is an ipa with a slightly higher abv and i've heard some like chefs talk about when it comes to spiciness there is a point at which spiciness becomes a novelty and it eclipses the quality of the dish do you feel that or worry about that when rising when raising the alcohol content i don't feel that way about alcohol I do, however, 100% feel that way about uh, IBUs and what? bitterness. Okay. Um, Why is like it? Is do you find that is that like a, a machismo thing that is as you find men like to say? Yeah. Oh, I like the bitterest of the bitterest. Yeah, uh, totally. And 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 with beer, um, alcohol is kind of negligible because like. I mean, you want to drink the best beer that you can drink, and and if you're really trying to get like a an ABV, the highest you're gonna get is like 
14, 15%. And that's like an outlier on the high side, right? Like that's the strongest beer in the world. Typically a beer is going to be no higher than, I mean, nine, 10 percent even and, and that's big, you know? And and what we do at Vezasur is we specialize in these beers that are like four to five percent. So uh, I certainly don't think that that I try to do that or fall victim to that with ABV. Uh, but I do see breweries falling victim to that with the IBUs and using hops. Um, and the reason for that is there is a utilization factor on how much bitterness you can really get out of a hop, uh, out of a one hop cone. And I see these folks making 120, 130 IBU beers, which is well, for context, a lot. For context, what's a common bitter beer that I would know of and like a respectable average amount of IBU? Like what's the – give me a sense of scale. Yeah, so like the Malierba at 5.2% alcohol by volume is 47 IBUs. Okay. So relatively low. Um, and IBU is just a, a, a bitterness measurement that is how much alpha acids are in a liter of, of beer. Um, but, and, and, and typical, and, and to expound on that, like typical, like I, I believe like Sierra Nevada is probably around like 45 or 50. Um, okay. All of like the typical mainstream beginning IPA are like in the 45 to 50, 40 to 50 range. And then as people develop their palates for for higher IBU beers and and became what we like to call hop heads, uh, they, they developed more of an affinity for that. And, and so that's when those like 50 to 60 to 70 IBU ranges became acceptable in like, uh, in mainstream beer, uh, in mainstream craft beer. But there's a limit to that. What I think of as the standard for bitter is like, you know, like baby aspirin. Mm -hmm. That's like the standard for bitter. And, and you, you kind of like get to that point where like there's a, a point of diminishing return. So, uh, I find that these folks are, are either a, this is my thing is that a, they're either adding so many hops that their calculated IBUs is so high above a hundred that they're just going to put it on the label as like a, it's almost like a billboard, like neon side, like, wow, this has 120 IBUs in it. Or the opposite end of that spectrum is that they add so many hops on the back end, like I was talking about with no reservations, like at, at the end of the brew to where they say that there's no IBUs in the beer, but we're also adding all of these hops that has all of this flavor, um, but there's no IBUs. Okay, what stands out in your memory as the biggest calamity? Uh, in the sense of like, you invested so much time and effort into a particular brew and it, it fell apart. <laughs> I mean, brew, brewing is just filled with, yeah, experimentation, pivoting, um, realizing where you are and, 
and then and then trying to get to a final product um biggest calamity that's a good question i'd say that i made the recipe for the the south coast ipa um as uh to go along with a, a trend that you were you were talking about trends and um was supposed to be along along the lines of the trend of a brute IPA, so very dry. Um, the 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 purpose of a brute IPA is to kind of uh, instead of it having a lot of residual extract and residual sweetness in the beer, it's going to have none of that, and it's going to be super dry, more like a champagne, um, very spritzy. But no, no residual sweetness, no, no mouthfeel to it. Really, just very dry. I tried, I tried to do that, and I failed terribly. <laughs> and and uh, it did not. Uh, and and the it did not ferment to to the degree that I wanted it to. And that was because I added these enzymes um, that I wanted to use in a in a step where. Uh, I denatured them, or I essentially killed the enzymes, and, and they had no effect on the beer at the end of the day, and I, I thought it was a smart place to put them, and it ended up not being a smart place to, to put them, so it definitely takes a, a little bit of um, humility to uh, admit that. Totally killed the enzymes and did not make a brood IPA. Uh, made a great, and we made a great IPA. 100% of the time, so proud of this IPA, and it's our number one selling IPA, but I totally failed in my job in trying to make a brewed IPA, because I didn't. Uh, I just made an IPA, which is, <laughs> at the end of the day is okay, uh, but I missed the mark. I, I have to put my ego aside to, to admit that, but <laughs> that is definitely the biggest calamity that we had, and, and, and what was nice was that we pivoted uh, with that and we just made that beer exactly the way that we made it that time and just took the enzyme out and and we've made it the same way every time uh, afterwards and and it's been it's been wonderful so well I, we're, we're very happy I certainly find of the friends of mine who sort of embark on creative endeavors the part of the reason they get so discouraged is because people don't talk about the mistakes People don't yeah. broadcast yeah. how many times they had to fail in order to get the good thing. So I think it's <laughs> yep. it's not it's it's not only healthy; it's charitable for you to tell stories about when you totally miss the mark um, and something good came of it, as is often the case with errors. The word that the word that I was looking for was serendipitous. Okay, it was All almost right. serendipitous, right? <laughs> like so. I mean, we're it, it it seemed like it was meant to be. It was a mistake. But it, it, at the end of the day, we're all very happy about it. And, and I, I can still remember the time that I poured that beer for the first time from the tank. And we were like, all right, we are, we're on to something here. <laughs> this is good. All right. All's well that ends well. <laughs>